0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there. Welcome to the biggest show that tries to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life that the ABC has ever produced. Is that a big call? I think it is. It's the only show with that slogan. Such as it is. It's called The Minefield. We're delighted to have you along. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Did you like the
0: grandiosity of all that, Scott? Yeah, I like that. But it was it was grandiosity, but it was also a fair degree of humility. It's almost shrinking in the face of the largeness of the task. I don't like what, that at all. Yeah, oh, very, very well done.
1: I think it's because it was so ridiculous. Already? There's a point where you
0: reach for grandiosity and realize
1: this is just stupid. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> you have to... Humility is the only option after that, which, well, maybe it's not humility at all if you have no option. <laughs> it's If it's compelled,
0: then that's the way it is. Um, this will be fun. Mm. I'm stupidly excited. This is a really important topic. We just said before the show got underway, I've got no idea where it's going to go. But historically, our best shows have been the ones mm. where none of us had any idea where we were going. And then we realized, oh, we actually got someplace kind of nice. Yeah. How
1: do you want to start? Do you want me to go? Yeah, of course. I mean, you're a coiled
0: spring, mate. Just let it go. How well you know me. There's a phenomenon that I've been, I'll confess, thinking about for the better part of two decades. I, I, I first observed it in 1998. I've been sort of wondering about it. And just lately, it's really coalesced for me on all sorts of different levels. So it's the problem of bigness, of bigness which has never, in many respects, not been a philosophical problem. I mean, Kant's name, for instance, for bigness is the sublime. And the very fact of something that evades our categories and our capacities for comprehension ought to produce in us both a curiosity, a certain intellectual or philosophical restlessness. We keep approaching the void and then no sooner are we near it than we kind of... Um, we recoil from what it is we don't know. But there's nonetheless a kind of erotic dimension to bigness, uh, the attempt of human understanding to approach that which it cannot understand. That's, That's a notion, of course, that goes all the way back to Plato as well. It's there in religious traditions like Judaism and Islam. But it seems to me that over the last century and a bit, bigness has taken on a kind of different hue. So most people would be aware precisely because of the interest in the problem of monopolies and, and antitrust tendencies, uh, that there's been a kind of resurgence of interest in the democratic threat of bigness. And so a lot of people have kind of dredged back up some of Louis Brandeis's remarkable and remarkably prescient warnings back from uh, 1912, 1913, about what he called the curse or even in some places the evil of bigness, uh, which, for him, referred to really the kind of monopolistic tendencies of corporations, who uh, who accumulated effectively unassailable power over their employees. Actually, Wellade, I think Ned Dobos was just recently, you know, when we did the show about um, about uh, military virtue and virtue more generally, uh, he kind of appealed to precisely this: the unassailable power that mining companies had over miners, the yeah. unresponsiveness. To their reluctance to be lowered down into the into the pit, so for Louis Brandeis there was something profoundly undemocratic about this unassailable accumulation of power, and so he thought that the importance of you know robust trade unions, for instance, and a robust electorate that didn't simply accept the bigness of government, for instance. This is now you know here we have a very distinctively American tone, don't we? So there was something about uh, about bigness that needed to be resisted because for Brandeis, bigness—the kind of the unassailability of power being wielded over a group of people—there was something about that 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 irreparably damaged both the conditions of individual liberty and freedom, uh, but also the the capacity of individuals to exert a degree of agency over their lives. And so that's the big threat. Of bigness, and you often hear this rolled out these days in the face of the accumulated corporate power of these megaliths—these not just monopolies but megopolies—that uh, seem to hold sway over so much of our waking and sleeping life. The too big to fail phenomenon. The too big to fail phenomenon. Exactly right. Um, and so you often—and and I, I again—I don't know if you've noticed this, but that idea of bigness and the critiques of it have also gone hand in hand with a resurgence of certain forms of conspiratorial thinking. Have you noticed? So, so it's not just bigness, but there's also someone behind the curtain. There's Ooh. bigness and there's unassailable power, but there's also control. And so what needs to happen is that control needs to be wrested out of the fingers of these vast corporate entities or these malevolent figures, whether they be Mark Zuckerberg or Rupert Murdoch or whatever, you know. Um, and power needs to be thereby democratized.
1: And sorry, and what's important about those figures, by the way, is that they operate in democratic countries but are unelected. Yes, that's right. So their, their power is unimpeachable. Mm. Um, the, the bigness of the state is intolerable to certain people with a political certain political disposition, but it's more tolerable because you can get rid of it, mm. or you can, you can at least get rid of the purveyors of it. <laughs> Corporate bigness is a different thing, mm. especially the ones you mentioned, by the way, I don't know if you meant it this way or not, but they have control over our informational lives and, and our knowledge ecosystems, which is an extraordinary power to have.
0: Um, and that's why then we've seen ever since 2016, we've tended to see the figure of the puppeteer emerge again and again. Yeah. What if that could not be further from the truth? (laughs) This is where we get into the really radical question of bigness. What if it's not just that we've reached the point where it's too big to fail, but also we are now confronting phenomena that are too big to control and therefore too big to resist? So can I take a, just a slight turn here? Because I want to move away from economic or corporate and political. I think there's a phenomenon of cultural bigness that we're suffering from as the moment, at, at the moment. So I, I first encountered it back in 1998. One of my favorite book critics, someone who I had a great pleasure to meet back in 2008 in Berlin, James Wood, uh, a famed book critic of The Guardian, The New Republic, now he's at the New Yorker. He wrote this extraordinary review of a novel that was being heralded on every, at every side, Don DeLillo's 1997 book Underworld. But this is how James Wood began his review. He said, this book is so large, so serious, so ambitious, so often well-written, so punctually intelligent that it produces its own antibodies and makes criticism a small germ. It's easy and rightly so for big books to flush away criticism. In other words, every time you try to critique what this book does or doesn't do, the moral vision or the political vision that it tries to lay out, there's something about the sheer ambition of the book that, that smothers any attempt to criticise it. I don't know if you heard this, Willie, but something similar was happening when A.O. Scott, the New York Times film critic, announced that he was getting out of the film critic business. Yes, I did hear about did you this. Hear? It this a, is fascinating. It yeah. was And he said, essentially, what he was dying from was the smothering effect of fandom in response to the emergence of these huge franchises and the ones that he particularly mentions are Marvel and DC. So he says, for instance, I'm not a fan of modern fandom. This isn't only because I've been swarmed on Twitter by angry devotees of Marvel and DC. It's more that the behavior of these social media hordes represents an anti-democratic, anti-intellectual mindset that is harmful to the cause of art and antithetical to the spirit of movies. In other words, there's something about the very act of watching a movie that ought to engage a form of aesthetic judgment, where we want to be true to ourselves and true to our tastes and our feelings, our, our discriminatory energies in response to that. Any, I mean... Uh, again, I don't know if you've read, Willie A.O. Scott's wonderful reviews of especially the last two in the Marvel saga, you know, Infinity War and, and Endgame. He has this glorious moment at the end of Wonder them where he says, Endgame, this is, you know, Avengers Endgame, is a monument to adequacy, a fitting capstone to an enterprise that figured out how to be good enough for enough people, enough of the time. <laughs> Which, Well, that, that's that's just pop culture, isn't it? It is just... Exactly, and so you have these franchises that are too big to critique, that are too big to resist, and that they generate a kind of fandom that is big enough that it becomes irresistible to the discriminating film critic without that film critic then inviting, if you like, uh, such a degree of opprobrium, such an attack, such a swarming that it becomes almost unlivable. And
1: May I propose an please. alternative way of categorising
0: this, though? Yeah. I, like
1: I see what you're saying. I just wonder whether "bigness" is actually the right term, mm-hmm. or that this is a phenomenon of bigness. It's a phenomenon of of size in that fandoms and the culture that surrounds fandom, whether it be of you know a cultural product or a political party or whatever, um, can be smothering. But I actually think one of the reasons for that is the opposite of bigness. It's that society has fractured into a
0: whole lot of parallel smallnesses. Nice. Wonderful. Collectivities, could you call it?
1: Yeah, I suppose you could. I mean,
0: certainly the way they circulate online is in the form of collectivities.
1: Yeah. Who have no reason or inclination to engage each other except to the extent that they provide the respective raw material for their respective mills. Mm, that's right. That's not bigness. I mean, it's bigness in the sense that they become big enough to have their own self-sustaining energy and to express themselves with a loud enough megaphone such, as that, such that they do become smothering. But the, these are subcultures. Mm-hmm. They're not cultures. That's right. And they exist in an utterly self-referential way because societies become smaller. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Not because it's become bigger, because culture has become fractured into small fragments, rather small than big enough ish to span these. Small-ish well,
0: fragments. Small-ish fragments. I think that's in many ways the point. What turns on that distinction? Well. If, if you have, for instance, now, let me take a step back. This is not a new phenomenon. I mean, it's fascinating to me if you go back to, say, the 1840s, reading some of Soren Kierkegaard's concerns over people discovering a degree of political and quasi-ethical potency by joining themselves to the capital P public. So their voice becomes big because they seem to be following a cultural trend, a movement of history. And for Kierkegaard, that joining of the public is not only, uh, to some extent, illusory, it's a false sense of potency, but he said that ultimately that joining of the public, which of course didn't mean everybody, but it meant a huge trend, it meant a, 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 a swathe of people. He said what that was, it was ultimately corrosive to what he called ethical individuality which is knowing what one thinks and being responsive to that, to which one disagrees. I think mm. there's, there's something kind of interesting there. So when you describe the emergence of subcultures, we are still talking about these relatively enormous collectivities that are moving around and swarming and bumping against one another, and then growing in a degree of ferocity and movement in response to its sworn enemies or its counter cultures. Um, and what gets lost in the middle of that then would be what we might call, for instance, a form of democratic individuality or even ethical individuality, if you want to stick with Kierkegaard's terms, so that one's life in this context of a culture without center, a culture without common ground, but of circulating, antagonistic, bumping up against one another's subcultures, uh, this then becomes an expression of of bigness in a way precisely because it's the interaction of these things and their mutual growth and the production of data as the result that then feeds the environment as a whole. In other words, the bigness is the environment within which these things happen and the extent to which that environment thrives and depends upon the antagonistic bumping up against one another of these various swarming subcultures. Yes, excellent.
1: So the bigness then... We're returned in our contemplation of bigness to the Zuckerbergs because they're the ones providing or ruling over the broad strokes of the informational environment. The milieu. Yes. Yes. Nice. The structures that facilitate our cultural exchange or lack of cultural exchange, as the case may be. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you mean by structure? I mean, do you mean the oh. internal logic of it, the, the basis upon which certain things thrive, certain things fail? No, no.
1: I just meant it in a more plain sense of literally the machinery, right? Okay, that facilitate, you know, the the websites or the the social media platforms that you know, that facilitate. you think of them as the the hardware, if you like, even though I know they're software, but you know, the the, hard, the cultural hardware and all the messages we send within them is kind of the software. But you you put me in mind of. I mean, it, really, you're describing this concept of a global microstructure, which. You know, sounds like a contradiction in terms, right? Because the global is big and micro is small. But actually that's what we're seeing is these are things that are small that can nonetheless exist in a kind of globalized way, which makes them take on an immensity, a kind of cultural immensity. But what's interesting is very often that immensity is imperceptible to people who don't engage with it. Mm -hmm. It's not big in the way that the Beatles were big you didn't need to engage with the Beatles to notice them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I can tell you, you can live a life without Marvel <laughs> and in sort of blissful ignorance of the Marvel fandom and the way that it behaves, etc. You can do that. Maybe not if you're a film critic, but people can do that. Um, we should do a show on fame. Yes, we should. Because one of the um, most interesting observations I've come across in, I don't know, probably the last five years, is this, I was in this essay I read that really no one's famous anymore. And I, and I just think about that for a moment. Like, the, who would you say, apart from, say, the President of the United States or something like that, who in, say, popular culture or entertainment is famous that wasn't famous in the noughties mm-hmm. or didn't emerge in that sort of, let's say, what, early 2010s? Everyone who's emerged after that, they're... Immensely well known in a small group, or a relatively small group. You, if if wow. I dumped you in the middle of, if I dumped you in the middle of a street somewhere in Australia, and said have a conversation with someone about music, you wouldn't get very far. Mm-hmm. In a way that simply wasn't true of a previous era. So, in other words, I mean, there's no. This this is an era that doesn't have its Michael Jacksons and doesn't have its Madonnas and doesn't have its Tom Cruises and doesn't have, like. It just doesn't exist in the same way. That is cultural bigness.
0: Okay. Possibly. Possibly. But I think there there is a difference. Yes, we don't have fame in the same way as in a person who occupies the center to which all people come and uh, assign a degree of at least acknowledgement, if not obeisance. There maybe are a couple artists that I think we would maybe put into that that category. It is interesting to me, for instance, if I can riff on Zadie Smith's wonderful essay about the difference between Michael Jackson, Prince and Beyonce. Uh, Zadie Smith says that that what Beyonce demands of her fans and those who attend her concerts isn't enjoyment or even fandom, but obedience. Um, There are singular... But but, but think about
1: Beyonce. When does she emerge? Yes, that's right. Um, However, however... Sorry, and the reason I think that's significant is... She's a carryover. She's legacy, mm. right? Taylor Swift, same thing, right? So these are sort of the, the last expressions of a period where culture was big. Mm-hmm. But and it's I, very hard to start now. Yes, and
2: here's
0: and the reason. Here's the reason because, there, a, because, there, because there is no center context. ground. Because there is yes. no center ground. And so what you find is that those people that capture or tend to catalyze, even for a moment, tend to arra- arrest the flow of attention, engagement, knowledge, the circulation of quote-unquote content, the people that tend to arrest those flows, around which those flows tend to congeal for a particular period of time, this is what we call the the phenomenon of virality, is that these people don't so much lead the content, but are led by it. And so you have someone like either Donald Trump or like Elon Musk, who cannot be said to be famous in the sense that they exert a kind of gravitational pull on the content. Rather, they are, I mean, what I think distinguishes both of those characters is that they are effectively chameleons who keep pursuing, who try to keep themselves relevant by continuing to pursue the attention and the interest of these flows that are always taking place online. Uh, uh, I want to I think more about that because I,
1: I suspect the same is true of say the artists of yesteryear that we're talking about that
0: may well be right but you don't get the same you don't get the same legacy you don't get the kind of accumulated fame in precisely the same way in other words both Elon Musk and Donald Trump they both thrive because of their devotees and their detractors those that love them and hmm. those that hate them and those that yeah. love and those that hate are bound together in this perpetual cycle of feedback and reactivity. This is what William Davies calls the, the, the reaction economy. So reaction then is, be, is part of the decentralized driver that continues to accumulate more and more and more and more data, which then populates this milieu in which we live. And I think this yeah, is- Yeah. I just think Trump's, Trump Trump may not be the best example because he
1: literally was the president of the United States. And there's a certain fame and heft and so on that attaches to that office. And Musk is different, again, because, I mean, maybe I have this completely wrong, but I feel like he's become closer to someone who's truly famous since he took over Twitter. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that, again, is that he's moving into, certainly not the same way, but moving into Zuckerberg territory. So there's a certain bigness there, but that, again, is bigness that accrues to being in charge of
0: or somehow having dominion over. Yeah, but in both instances, you also have the character, the persona of the provocateur. And this is why, as uh, over and against mm. fame, and again, this is something you and know I have talked about in the past with respect to other people, I think Slavoj Žižek to some extent falls into this category. I think for a time Richard Dawkins fell into this category. It seems to me both Donald Trump and Elon Musk solidly fall into this category. You have people who become quote unquote famous or renowned. They then attract this massive following of both devotees and detractors. And as a result of servicing both devotees and detractors, they end up becoming, if you like, caricatures of themselves. And it's the caricatures of themselves that then creates or feeds is the proper obeisance that they pay to the reaction economy. Okay. So, but how are you calling that bigness? Well, here's, here's the thing. I'm kind of reliant here on this wonderful new book by David Auerbach called Mega Nets, where he says that one of the defining features of our time is the existence of these digital networks that both produce and that reap and then grow from Uh, enormous, incalculable amounts of data such that we now have reached the point where these things are not just too big to fail, they are far too big to control. Yeah, And, and I agree totally with that. And the calls for regulation and the ascriptions of blame on account of greed, if they really wanted to do something about this, they could, so completely misses the point of the digital milieu in which we live and through which we've come to see the world. That we've missed what is truly pernicious about it. Namely, what characterizes these mega nets is their reliance on volume, the sheer amount, velocity, Mm -hmm. the fact of speed that these things accumulate and bounce off one another constantly always generating new data Uh, and then virality. Um, namely, these—the fact that these things can spread quickly and then dissipate and disappear into the ether, just as quickly. Now, I think there's something there about that phenomenon of bigness, and the one I just want to linger on for a moment is volume. Um, we made a reference to Marvel before; it's the only reference to Marvel I'm going to make for the rest of this conversation. It's almost <laughs> as if bigness is here like Thanos; it is inevitable. And if you talk to people in newsrooms, you talk to people who are the social media drivers of the way that news operates and the way that news's social media operations run, the sheer volume of the numbers that are being sought, that are being attracted, that are then held out as the lure and as the punishment, so completely dwarfs what would have been a reality in newsrooms not that long ago. Which numbers are you talking about? Uh, traffic is in the millions, tens of millions, and then billions to the point of things that are truly viral. These that's, are then- only part, that's only partly true. Talk to
1: someone who's, I don't know, presiding over a, a radio station or a television station. I mean, what, what they're seeing is a precipitous drop in traffic to varying degrees. I mean, it's a more complicated picture than that, but... Precisely because of the fragmentation of the cultural landscape.
0: That's right. But then that drop-off ends up being ameliorated to some extent by its pickup on alternate forms of social media. No, it doesn't. That's the whole point. It doesn't. Yeah, except it also kind of is. No. Uh, In isolated cases, maybe. No, no. But uh, this is where legacy media then becomes plugged into the reaction economy. So that even if something, yeah, but it doesn't make money that way. No, no, but it raises attention and it leads to engagement. That's that's the point. It's not just about the Uh, economics of it.
1: The bigness of Bert Newton (laughs) is non-existent (laughs) today. That's true. That's true. So I think I think we're describing cultural fracture. I think you know what I'm not opposing the bigness thesis. I just don't think it applies to the cultural landscape in quite the way you're articulating. I think we might be looking at the opposite of that in the cultural landscape, partly because of the truly big structures that lead to fragmentation. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. We've what? had discussions in the, the political realm about this before, right? Like, yeah. you know, we don't have majorities anymore. What we yeah, have the is, aggregation of the disaffected. Yes. Hmm. And so the yeah, only majorities right. that exist seem to be minorities that have come together around an object of, I don't know, hate? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's not bigness. What we do have is the amplification of smallness
0: and the emergence and, what, and the emergence of collectivities and the disappearance of democratic individuality that's that I think is probably the point I want to stress most
1: maybe, but I wonder if that were equally true in a more centralized informational landscape, such as with television being dominant or hmm. whatever Possibly. anyway. Let's ask I guest all these questions, shall we?
0: And it just so happens that our guest is David Auerbach. He's a, oh, that's very handy. I know. I laid out the breadcrumbs. He's a how do I describe him? He's a polymath, a writer, a technologist, a software engineer. Most importantly, for our purposes, is the author of Mega Nets: How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. David, thank you for joining us on the Minefield.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be uh, to be here. <laughs> Um, You made so many good points across such a wide variety of topics. I I don't even quite know where to start off. Um, You know, in the 19th century at the end, the great historian Jakob Burkhardt said that the 20th century would be the uh, age of oversimplification. And I think that uh, the reason for that is because simplification is needed just for us to get a grip on the world. And so you know we increasingly talk in these abstract terms just to provide some kind of frame for taking in the sheer amount of chaos and uh sheer quantity of data and this was the the point i was trying to make in my book meganets was that these systems that i call meganets which are these huge aggregations of both people and computers because you can't have it with one or the other you need both you need tons of humans hooked up to tons of computers all feeding back on themselves nonstop. my point is that they've created more than just largeness i think maybe a better word would be abundance that we've gone from a, uh, an economy uh, in which there was sort of a, a, there was fundamentally a scarcity of content, or at least enough, con- not so much content that you couldn't get your head around it. Well, that's definitely over. Not only is there this abundance, but we live in this world in which there's so much. That there's not even a need, and there's so much capacity for publishing it that there's no pruning or selection process. In the twentieth century, sort of those centralized, you know, top-down large media narratives would eventually rule the day. You could have a couple of them, but at the end of the day, you know, there's still going to be a paper a couple paper of records. That's not the case anymore because meganets provide this way for people to find themselves in the absence of some centralized organization. So you can find people who agree with you on everything and form into a little what I call narrative bunker, which I think is even better than calling it a subculture, because a subculture can have more diverse voices. But meganets really group people because they're alike. You're shown stuff on social networks, on the internet, because it resembles stuff you've already seen. So the natural tendency is to be joined up with stuff that's similar to what you've already seen and with people who believe what you believe yourself. Uh, I mean, this is
0: the the critique we often hear about, sort of, you know, uh, filter bubbles. But it's not just that we keep seeing stuff- It's beyond that. It is, So, so it's not just that we keep seeing stuff that we already like or things that we already, or we grouped with people, but it's, we also keep getting fed, I don't know quite else how to put this, the things that we love to hate. And so it's, right. that, it's yes. that reactiveness, not just to what we already love or assign our, our agreement to, but also that which properly generates our ferocity, our reaction, our engagement
2: right so those i think often what we hate tend to be you know almost chimeras they're they're not people who we associate with so what we have is you you know you have this community and you can see this on all sides of the pol- political spectrum of having an increasingly distant and vague idea of what you're up against and yet having no direct contact with it because this is, I think, a combination of why things are bigger and smaller. They're bigger because there's just so much more of everything. They're smaller because things from far away can suddenly reach you. So it feels like the entire notion of scale has broken down. And um, actually, the frame that I like to use, I use it at one point in the book, is uh, the old sociologist Ferdinand Tunis and his distinction between um, society and culture or Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. Uh, I think I reversed it there that culture is sort of the more traditional small scale mores of of the community in which you exist. Society is the urbanized, regulated, legally and politically enforced set of values that we feel more alienated from because it's not something we feel personally attached to. And what he, he and then Max Weber elaborated on was to say that, you know, that the, the growth of urban society, mass media and things like that was leading to the triumph of the larger scale of uh, society over smaller scale culture. And the paradox, I think, is that Meganets have brought back the notion of, of Gemeinschaft, of the cultural because you can now have these small scale cultures that are that come together on uh, in a geographically distributed way. but you now can create you know a microculture of your own. You can join up with a microculture of your own that is so close to what you feel and think that you're not going to feel alienated from it. And that has the effect, I think, of what you were getting at where that there's not this room for disagreement, less because, uh, less because there's intolerance of it, but more because you're already being pushed into places in which you already meet with total agreement. And that's what led me to conclude that, you know, online we're seeing that the unit of agency is not, is really not the individual, but the collective, the group. That you need to have enough people who think the same way you did to make a dent. And that's why you don't see sort of celebrity in the way you were talking about with um you know michael jackson for example yeah that doesn't that can't happen anymore because because of the sheer the difference in scale has happened that the individual is not really the unit anymore what what's rather happening is that the group is turning inward and finding its place and then interacting on mass with other groups where your gang goes up against some other gang and everybody believes the same thing because so much depends on volume now. You've got to have the quantity.
1: I'd like to submit for your consideration, David, one or two writers to that. One is, I think one of the features of our time actually is that the volume you need for that, that, that sort of cultural presence is far smaller than it used to be. We're certainly seeing this politically. That
2: kind of cultural presence with who? I, mean, I don't know how I don't to think that. If you're looking at the sort of cultural presence that Michael Jackson had, I don't even think it's possible anymore.
1: No, no, that's... De- well, I've been, I've spent the last 20 minutes arguing with Scott that it's not possible. So, yeah. I, yes, I, I you don't have to convince me there. But what I mean <laughs> is, you take, take this within politics, right? So I'm thinking of, for example, the essay Jonathan Haidt wrote in The Atlantic recently that got a lot of attention because it was describing... He was describing what he called the... Stupefaction process, I think. So, the, the process by which I think you said America, but you could extend beyond that has been made more stupid because of the way public debate proceeds. But one of the things he identified is actually that it's not pre formed groups where everybody agrees that we see, it's groups where people are frequently beaten into submission by those who have more extreme views within the group. And so in the same way that you get with lots, you know lots of radical politics, there's a kind of outbidding process so that someone stakes a position and someone says, well, I'm so committed to this position that I'm going to say this. And if you yeah. disagree with that, well, now you're out of the. You know, so it, it's more dynamic yeah. than just people coming mm, right. with you know already 100% consensus. So
2: it's interesting. You, oh, sorry. May I, may I yeah, reply? No, please. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think there's actually a bias in what Haidt is saying. That you see those sorts of things, and this is um, there's a term called a latent group, that that sort of discipline and purity, and the, Mary Douglas wrote about this in her amazing book, How Institutions Work. It happens in groups that think of themselves as marginal, and especially groups that are shrinking in size. And the groups that we are seeing that happen to tend to be the elite groups, uh, specifically academia and that the sense of losing ground does cause that sort of policing. But the problem is is that that actually does hurt the group. So I think that you will be seeing a kind of evolutionary process where that does represent one phenomenon, but those groups will, in fact, take a hit, and people will leave them and find places in which they don't feel beaten into submission. That is already happening, I think. I think that we've already passed a sort of peak of that, I don't know what you want to call it, of a certain kind of purity politics, because enough people are saying, well, yeah, I've been kicked out by this. That, you know, if you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint— Groups like that can they stop growing after a certain point?
1: But would you uh, would you say the same well, we, becomes true of something like Mar I mean, if you're a Marvel fan involved in the Mar- Marvel fandom online, who wanted to mm-hmm. say, you know what, I actually quite like Batman. Can you can you see a similar process occurring there, where a new Marvel fandom that likes Batman starts to emerge? Because I find that a little harder to imagine than.
2: Yeah, I, they, they become sub fandoms. I mean, they're uh-huh. warring fan cultures. Uh, just and some of the, some of these disagreements, some are more serious than others. You know, one of the big things are are shipper fights, in other words, fights between people who think, oh, I think these two characters should be in a relationship together, versus people who say no, it should be these other two characters. Yeah, and those things aren't really damaging to the group. Those I, I don't think of those things as schismatic disagreements. So, no, you know, that's there's, kind there's of the a, pantomime a of it, of what, yeah. what's... Yeah, and it, it is a new kind of interaction because it's not something that I think Tony Scott wants to have anything to do with. But in terms of saying, oh, I like Batman, I, I mean, there're going to be communities in which you, in which you're going to get raked over the coals for one reason or another. But when you think of Marvel fandom, that's a huge group, and there are subcommunities within that. And yeah, I do think people gr- gravitate towards ones in which there isn't that level of nastiness towards their preferred views. Some people like nastiness and there are definitely more nasty communities, but honestly from my observations they do seem to die out simply because especially if they get too nasty.
0: Yeah, but um, what's what's really interesting here for both of you is that the characteristics you just assigned to fandom, how much that actually applies to so many different forms of online interaction, engagement, consumption. So we could even refer to this as, say, the fandomification of everything. Politics becomes a form of fandom. And and so these are things where we consume our politics and our sports and our popular culture. And just incidentally, isn't it interesting the extent to which increasing numbers of podcasts, for instance, or forms of YouTube channels or forms of entertainment try to straddle the politics sport, popular culture, divide. Because to some extent, fandom, the people we love, the subplots, though I wonder what comes next. These are all the things that are bound together within the same logic, within the same uh, verve or frisson of fandom itself, which then necessarily has to orient itself against those who are on the opposite side, those who either well, don't. Think what, yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, what happens, I think, is that the creators themselves end up, becoming more the followers of the masses. That's, That's right. the thing is that right. has much more of a influence. And I honestly think you can draw a comparison between even to people like Elon Musk and Donald Trump, that if you look at their, they don't have fixed beliefs. They are so much as they are good at following, at sensing and following uh, certain large patterns of crowds. And, and that's why I think you see things like QAnon develop, uh, QAnon, the, the conspiracy theory about this, that, and the other here in the United States, uh, that, that no institutional Republicans would ever want to get on board with that amount of insanity. But they didn't have a choice. Their constituents were able to get to each other and talk to each other without the intervention of some uh, of what used to be the necessity for an elite mouthpiece. That's gone. So they can get together and it can be this hothouse environment in which people work it up. And, yeah, you can debate within that context, but there's a certain set of shared assumptions within each of these narrative bunkers that hold sway. And there's nothing that's going to get people away from it once they're in a community in which it's being reinforced constantly. So what I think is interesting here, David,
0: I kind of I planted my flag in the ground a little bit earlier um, you know, we've said on this show a lot of kind of horrible things about, about the some of the moral problems associated with individualism, you know, uh, say atomized individualism or moral atomization. But there is something both precious and terminally under threat about the capacity for what we might call democratic or ethical individuality, which would mean... If I'm joining something, the act of giving my consent ought to come out of a certain period of internal incubation. I ought to mean it. And that there's something corrosive about the patterns of either conformism, the kind of demand for obedience for moving along with the flows of this particular group, but also being locked in certain patterns of behavior that are mutually immiserating and corrupting, like what we would call say a, a reaction economy, where you know the commerce of our online interactions uh, are fueled by sort of hot takes, reactions, takedowns and, and, and so on. So I'm curious about the patterns of, I'm really reluctant to call it conformism, but there is a kind of demand for obedience in life within a mega net or within meganets that you've described. There are patterns of behavior in order to be legible that we need to follow. There are habits that we need to have reproduced in our lives. There are, forms in which, there, there are ways in which our forms of engagement need to be computationally legible, less reading, less text, more clicks, more swipes, more likes, more emojis. And so on. So I'm just wondering. I mean, you've you've got some interesting prescriptions about how to. I don't think resist meganets net, mega is what you call it, but ways in which we might do something other than merely accommodate ourselves to it. Introduce a little something different uh, into the milieu. But I'm also wondering how you feel, what you think about the prospects of something like ethical individuality, about meaning what we say, and if you like, being thoughtful in the sense that Hannah Arendt might have meant it. A thoughtfulness that comes out of silence, that comes out of consideration and thoughtful
2: engagement. I think it gets back to what I was saying about abundance, that in some ways the space for those sorts of experiences relies on a certain scarcity of stimulus uh, and input, and that has in effect vanished. You know, you are constantly bombarded, you constantly have a phone uh, on which you are being connected up. So there's a degree to which I want to say that those sorts of terms really are becoming anachronisms and we just need to resign ourselves to new forms of social organizations and new forms of the ways of being, some of which do entail the death of what we think of as humanistic individualism. And I think, I want to say, I think, Democratic is kind of a tricky word here because Mm -hmm. democracy uh, uh, can be a double-edged sword in that context. But I think of it in terms of like classical humanism, the idea of sort of a single human soul as being uh, an inviolate presence and and, an island in a significant way. Uh, And actually, it's funny, I was reading, by coincidence today, I was reading a bit of... uh, Ernst Courteous' uh, masterpiece, <laughs> European Literature in yeah. the Latin Middle Ages, uh, a book that could not be written today. No one could get into that situation. But, and he says in it, uh, the advance of historical knowledge can be enjoyed only through voluntary participation. It has no useful economic effect, no calculably useful social effect um the protagonists of progress and historical understanding are always isolated individuals who are led by such historical convulsions as wars and revolutions to put new questions and so from my perspective I don't think I mean obviously that's what I'm trying to do by when I write this book and I feel what an uphill battle it is but I'm trying to change the question as well because I feel that our understanding of technology is uh, is inadequate and it's causing us to look in the wrong places for answers. It's causing us to beg Mark Zuckerberg to fix everything when that's a non-starter. We look at, uh, it causes us to seek regulatory fixes that aren't going to work either. So I'm trying to change the question. So obviously I have some faith in it since I did bother to write a book. But, you know, it's hard not to see the work of someone like Curtius and have a great respect for it, but also see it as an artifact of... A form of cultural order that, that can't exist anymore. And what is going to exist instead? I think something really significantly different that arises in sort of a, a trans individual way. What I mean, and I mean, I mean like bigger than the individual, I don't mean in the other sense of the term. So, uh, no, I think the pressures against it from the sheer obligations forced on us by life do make that impossible and we will still see dynamism coming up. Things will still change, but I don't think that you're going to see the sort of movement from the, you know, where an individual has a huge impact in the ways that you were talking about. I don't think that's going to happen as much. There's going to be a depersonalization and that makes it harder to have narratives as well because our bias always is towards stories of people. And what happens when those two seem anachronistic? I don't know.
1: Hmm. Um, well, except we, we have we're in an age where there are plenty of narratives that don't That's involve right. people or heroes, right? There, there might be political narratives based on a theory of the world or a even just a vocabulary that allows you to advocate or, or something like that. Yes, and, the, um,
2: shared myths, I think, and I do think people, yeah, people organize themselves around that in the same way that you know people now organize themselves around the lore of a franchise rather than around, you know, a particular story. It becomes Mm. sort of a shared environment. And we're going to see more of that the more we have sort of game-like online life, which Mm. is what is going to be marketed to us, that it's going to be sort of a collective creative effort.
0: Look, David, I, I guess I'm not so much interested in a kind of restoration of individual potency or effective agency in the sense that I can do something in the world but it's more that the economies of scale will be such that the only movies for instance that will exist in not too many years from now will be the ones that more or less conform to the demands of a marvel franchise that the kind uh, of
2: well there i can reassure you there i can reassure you yeah because the amount of movies being generated is going only going to go up yes and it will that's right especially with the Advancements in AI, the ability to produce professional quality content for increasing cheapness will produce an incredible glut. So what you'll see is that movies of the sort, we're seeing the the dying gasps of the blockbuster model, Uh, that sort of the appeal to these franchises is, is sort of the last thing they've got left, that new franchises are more or less in impossible to generate. And so you first saw the turn to whatever you call it, prestige television, which is sort of a a bastardized version of that. And even that is dying out now that you can't even get huge amounts of attention for uh, prestige television. So what's going to happen is there will be an incredible amount of content, but you'll only hear about the stuff that's in, you know, your little narrative bunker. Hmm. Uh, But it, it won't, it won't necessarily conform to Marvel studio, Marvel movies, it'll more conform to whatever it is. The other stuff you've been seeing is, uh, but the ability to make even commercial ish films is going to be much more within the realm of individuals. Because if you can't get professional actors, you can now generate them. Hmm. Well, you can get Hmm. professional, uh, you can get professional actors from the past. You can, I'd like, I can make another, I'll be able to make another Humphrey Bogart movie that yeah. the ability of a group a small group or even in, or even a single person to produce very very high quality content that's increasingly indistinguishable from what we see as uh, you know hollywood product today that that gap is going to close and hollywood itself is going to be increasingly inefficient that there's just going to be no justification for a budget of over 200 million dollars on a single movie any single movie
1: hmm interesting and so this is cultural smallness scott i'm convinced of it blockbusters are big a trillion movies that are seen by small groups of people that's not that's not big
0: Mm -hmm. but i suspect that the chasm between those two things are only going to grow and that might actually partly be the point
1: well maybe Mm. or maybe there won't be any blockbusters is it, well, these broadcasters they're thesis.
2: increasingly rely on an international distribution to just recoup their costs. Mm, that's right. And the mm. problem is is that just to be to get that international distribution, they need to be very very anodyne and not um, mm. Mm. offend anyone. And that's actually been causing trouble because you know Disney's actually having to have less like gay content in their films because they need the films to be released in countries where that's going to cause a problem. And that wasn't true 20 years ago, but it is now.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. This is where Scott's argument comes into it, into its own, is that's a consequence of the bigness.
2: I think, yeah, yeah, or abundance or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah,
1: maybe abundance is is the
2: the better. that the traditional scarcity of both production of content and the ability to distribute content, you know, only a certain large entities could get movies into theatres. That that's gone now. I can, you know, if nothing else, I can get something on YouTube and it's at least out there. It is at least accessible. Uh, Would you 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 even want
1: it in a theatre if people are going to prefer just to watch it at home anyway? And you're seeing lots of films going to streaming service. I mean, yeah, the whole, yeah. becomes
2: a And why would you want a streaming service when you can probably, you'll increasingly be able to get you know roughly equivalent quality content that's just made by a bunch of like post-college students uh, messing around
1: <laughs> i guess it depends how talented the college <laughs> students are right. um david we're out, out of time but honestly we we could have done i don't know a month of shows with you it would have been uh, very easy for us <laughs> to do so thank you very much for making yourself available for far less than a month um but extremely valuable nonetheless really appreciate your time
2: Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: That's David Auerbach, who's the author of Meganets, how digital forces beyond our control commandeer our daily lives and inner realities. How's that for an epic? There's some bigness in that title, Scott, no doubt about that. Um, That is it for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll be back next week.